before I uh, bring up another koan, how, how are we doing? Anything else to uh, talk about or bring up or mention? Mumun Khan, case 38. Uh, why can't the tail pass through? Is the name of this case. Uh, the case. Wuzu said, It's like a water buffalo climbing out a window. The head, horns, and legs all pass through. Why can't the tail pass through? Uh, woman's comment. If you can turn around with this one, see clearly and give a turning word, you will be able to repay your debts and be free to help others. If not, study the tale until you grasp it. And woman's poem. If it squeezes through, it falls into a ditch. If it squirms back, it's stuck forever. This little bitty tail, wonderful. So that's uh, what I'd like to talk about. Great literature, don't you think? Religious literature, it's wonderful stuff. So not pompous, you know. <laughs> so uh, the Buddha in the early Pali suttas, as you all know, quite often used homey metaphors. And the metaphor that he often used was the metaphor of the water buffalo. And in Zen, this metaphor taken from the early Buddhist suttas uh, was also used to stand for mind, consciousness. Now, to us, uh, a water buffalo seems like an exotic thing, but the beauty of the image in the original is that it is precisely the opposite of exotic. Because in China or India, in the countryside, to this day, the water buffalo has always been a, the most common household feature. It's kind of like the pickup truck, you know, in Montana. If there were no water buffaloes, there would be no plowing in the fields. There would be no transportation of goods. There would be no manure. Therefore, no fertilizer. Therefore, no, no fuel to heat your house in the cold weather. So the water buffalo is pretty ubiquitous and important and ordinary. And to make the water buffalo placid in temperament, but steady, powerful, dedicated, uncomplaining, 
to make the water buffalo stand for the ineffability and efficacy of the mind is truly a stroke of genius. And also accurate. The water buffalo, like the mind, is always around, always available, always willing to serve if only someone has a little skill and knows how to ask in the right way. And the water buffalo also has a mind of its own and is in its own quiet way unknowable and mysterious as all animals are. The most famous uh, development of the water buffalo metaphor is the Zen ox herding pictures, uh, which uses the process of taming an ox, which actually is the same as a water buffalo. I, I use the word ox because in English these pictures are known as the ox herding pictures. But it, these, these, uh, this uh, depiction of the, of the spiritual path as taming an ox, uh, representing the, the stages of taming the ox as the stages of spiritual development. So uh, one could give long discourse just on the ox herding pictures, but uh, and the various versions of the pictures differ slightly, but basically the idea is like this. The first thing is you're searching for the ox. You don't know where the ox is. You can't find it. You're searching for it. In other words, uh, one realizes, perhaps gradually, intentionally, or perhaps unintentionally, suddenly, and with panic and fear, that there is some spiritual work that needs to be done and that we haven't got the faintest idea how to go about it. But then you find the ox and you tame the ox enough so that you can ride the ox. And this is the time when we begin to become a little bit clear about our spiritual longing and how to go about a spiritual practice. Find a way to set in motion the gradual painstaking process of working in a disciplined way toward transformation. Next comes an empty circle. The ox and rider both disappear. And now we're into the Zen part, you know, of the ox herding pictures. And in this part, we see that so far in our path, we have been laboring to make something happen, to acquire something, to change something in our lives. And that this sort of effort to change, acquire, make something happen is not all that different from what we've always done in other areas of our lives. And although it's served us up to this point, now we realize this is counterproductive and we can't go on this way anymore. We realize that real spiritual practice is somehow different from this, somehow more than this, and at the same time much less than this we see at this stage that there's only practice, only effort, without any particular intention or any particular goal 
because we see that there is nothing really to be achieved and there's nobody there really to achieve it anyway. So now we begin to have a, a sense of lightness and joy in our practice. And we want to continue it, not because we're getting smarter and better and deeper and more wonderful, but because this is what we are. This is what gives us joy. The final stage in the ox herding uh, pictures is returning to the world with gift bestowing hands. And this is where you usually see a picture of the fat Buddha uh, with a big satchel on his back in the marketplace. And this is the final stage when we return to be the person absolutely the same as we were in the beginning in ordinary life, doing whatever we can uh, to be helpful without even thinking about being helpful. No longer uh, anymore beset by our own problems. We may have problems. It's just that we're not beset by them anymore. We now have the capacity to really feel others' feelings and to be useful even in the middle of impossible situations without falling into despair or defensiveness or burning out. This is the little synopsis of the Zen path as depicted in the ox herding pictures. In Zen practice, uh, the idea of mind, the ox, is a very wide concept like the water buffalo, it's something very ordinary. The idea of mind in Zen, including all ordinary states of mind and emotion, as well as exalted states of mind and debased states of mind. But the idea of mind in Zen also includes the highest spiritual states and beyond them. While Western scientific uh, materialism may in some vague way equate mind with brain, or at least mind with life, with conscious awareness, in Zen, mind includes life and consciousness awareness and the activity of the brain, but also includes much more than this. Even before and after death, there is mind. Even beyond mind, there is mind. In Zen, this mind, which we could also say heart, just as well, consciousness, which is both mind and heart. This, in Zen, this is called, often mind is referred to as no mind and is understood to go far beyond anything we can know or conceive of. Nirvana is mind. Buddha is mind. So here's the relevance then of the present case. In the stage of discipline, the conscious, careful stage of our spiritual cultivation, we do, I think, see many improvements in our lives. I think we do see that we are more aware, more compassionate, maybe we're calmer, less confused, and so forth. Often, oddly, it's the case that we don't notice this ourselves, but other people notice this and, and, and mention it to us. And we say, oh, really? Oh, that's good. 
they're looking at us from the other side of the window. So they can see the horns, the head, and all four legs, you know, pulling through the window. But we're looking in the other direction, and the only thing we can see is the tail. The damn tail can't get through. It's stuck. Can't seem to push through that window. We're not so much focused on all these various improvements at this point. All we can see is what has not improved, what's still left out, what's still incomplete, unfinished, and undone in our spiritual lives. Which is a good thing, I think. Imagine feeling as if we had perfected our spiritual work. We're all trying mightily to perfect our spiritual work. Imagine if you feel that you had done that. Imagine if you feel you have done all that there was to be done, seen all that there was to be seen, mastered all of Buddhism, perfected your character and your insight. Imagine feeling that way. Then you would really be in trouble, I think, if you had that feeling. Because I think you wouldn't really be seeing your own perfection, your own insight, uh, your own beauty, you'd probably be seeing some big delusion and, and completely missing the saliency of your true life. And also reducing the immensity and ineffability and the nobility of your practice to something quite small and manageable and seeable by you. Your little idea, however lofty it may seem. And not incidentally, one would rapidly come to the recognition, probably not by one's own introspection, but through events that would happen around you and responses from others, that there was something of self-satisfied nature uh, in this and something a little bit arrogant. So the tail can't fit through. Of course not. Of course, there's always something missing. There's always something unfinished and undone and lacking in your practice. And knowing this and being patient with it and even celebrating it is a good sign of spiritual progress. A good sign that the mind and the heart remain humble, open, and ready. My favorite saying of Zen Master Dogen is when Dharma does not fill your body and mind, you think it is already sufficient. When Dharma fills your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. In the last uh, few hundred years of our human culture, we've acquired a great deal of knowledge that has given us, I think on two sides of the coin, a kind of a warped picture of what a human being is. Now we know something of cosmology and the vastness of the universe of time and space. Now we understand that we are not at the physical center of the universe made by God. We know that the world is vast beyond measure and that we are only small creatures living a moment on a tiny planet in a distant galaxy surrounded by an all but unknowable vastness. 
biology shows us that we are not, as we once thought, the sovereigns of creation. We are only a part of a long evolutionary process of natural selection that is still ongoing. We are creatures of chance and endless change. All this can give us the feeling that we are unimportant, that our acts and thoughts ultimately don't matter that much in the grand scheme of things except to ourselves. On the other hand, we have the, the, the world of technology and the social sciences, and we've made such great progress uh, you know, in the material realm. Ever since the deists of the 18th century who valued reason above all and saw humankind as the measure of all things, social thinkers have told us that there is no limit to our ability to control what happens to engineer the perfect society and, and, and nowadays the perfect biological specimen. I was just listening on the radio about how they figured out how to do gene uh, alteration so that athletes would have you know, better muscles so they can engineer all kinds of improvements. Maybe we could even eventually, uh, through cybernetics, you know, create a perfect world based on perfect information and perfect self-knowledge. So this is the other extreme, you know. One is, we're lost in space, we don't matter. The other is, we can do anything and we can solve you know, all human problems. These are two extremes. As the story of the water buffalo uh, shows, the truth of what we are includes both of these extremes but is not limited by either of them. There is a great deal we can know and develop spiritually and in every other way. The head, the horns, and the legs all pass through. But there is something we will never be able to comprehend or even entirely appreciate in a direct way. That little tale shows us that despite the best efforts we make in our living, we are always humble, knowing that what happens to us in particular and to the world in general is not only the result of what we do and what we can see, but of many, many, many factors we will never know about. So we are not in control and we are not irrelevant. We are part of a pattern, part of a plan, however impossible it may be for us to know its scope or ever figure it out. So there is no choice for us but to act the best that we know how to act and to trust what is. Trust reality. To give up thinking that we know what's going to happen or what will the future will be and just let go. But as I say, this is not something passive, letting go, this letting go. Because we understand that reality is not an entity apart from us. Reality always works its progress through us 
and through everything that is, our smallest word and deed, all our feelings and attitudes matter on a vast scope, even though we will never understand this or know how to control it. Yet we know this to be so. And so we're careful and respectful in everything that we do, knowing how much it all matters. So our practice, although it may have seemed this way at first, in fact, is not something we're doing for our self-improvement to get us more calm, make us more loving individuals. Of course, we hope our practice will help us with these things. But in the end, our practice takes us beyond these worthy desires. And as we continue with our practice, we will come to see that we don't understand what our practice is or even why we're doing it. We understand that something beyond what we thought brought us to practice really brought us, and we don't even know what that is. We thought we came seeking wisdom, but we found that actually wisdom was seeking wisdom, using us as the means to do it. In our sitting practice, we can experience this directly. In Zen, as in Vipassana, we sit long, we sit deep, we sit devotedly. And our sitting practice is not just relaxation, and it's not just an external technique that we're applying. It's our life. And in our retreats, we voyage widely on our cushions. And daily sitting smooths the depths and integrates them into our lives. Sitting with openness to what arises in us without trying to shape it too much with it's supposed to be this way, but just being with what arises, we get to know ourselves pretty well and our patterns pretty well. And eventually we come to accept and be unafraid of what we are and what our lives have been. You, you see how afraid one is to look and see what one really is, because so much of what we are is unacceptable to us. But sitting long enough, you, you allow all that, and it's all right. And through this process, uh, gradually it becomes clear that besides all that, there's something else in us too. Something just at the edge of what we can talk about or even experience. Something, and I'm saying something, but it's not something, that's larger, stranger, more intimate, and more wonderful than we ever would have imagined. At first, we might just get a glimpse of this, and it might seem special or unusual. And later on, it seems to be there always, even if we can't define or even notice it as something objective or subjective.
but we trust it and we have confidence in it. Although the tail can never pass through, we know it is there. And that knowledge makes all the difference for our living, giving us an ease and a confidence we never had before. Also, uh, a natural kindness, for we know that everything is included within it. Oh, that tiny tail. Dogen's uh, term for this is called taking the backward step to turn the mind inward. This means stopping the search for anything at all. Not pursuing inner or outer objects, but simply being present in the radical isness of our living. Similarly, a woman in his comment enjoins us to turn around with this one. That's the start. But it's not enough for by itself this practice of turning around, taking a step backward, would be mere quiescence. The necessary completion of sitting long, sitting deep, and sitting devotedly is getting up from our seat. This getting up from our seat is giving a turning word, or as the Christian uh, desert fathers put it, a healing word coming forth to meet others in full engagement. No human being can escape this obligation. For where would you go to escape the nature of your own mind and your own heart? All of us depend on others. Without our teachers, our friends, our family, our society, the air we breathe, the earth we stand on, the food we eat, we literally would not exist. Our sitting in meditation will show us this and will give us the feeling that we have to repay this debt. Woman mentions this in his comment. After perhaps long years of our having been taken care of by others, we realize we now have to turn around and take care of them. Seeing what we truly are, which includes appreciating the part we will never be able to see, will bring us to this. And if not, then keep chasing your tail around until you're ready to give up. Woman's poem. If it squeezes through, it falls into a ditch. If it squirms back, it's stuck forever. This little bitty tail, wonderful. So there we are. This is our life, right? Big fat water buffalo stuck in this window. Does that sound right? <laughs> you can't get through one side and you can't pull back where you, where you were before. So whose idea is this anyway? I don't know. But whether it's a bad idea or a good idea, there we are. Part way through, stuck right in the middle of the human condition. And we're always frustrated by it and we're always working on it. No matter what stage in the ox herding path we are on, 
and in Zen, you know, the understanding is that we're all in some stage, including the Buddha. The Buddha is in some stage of practice. We're all in process, neither here nor there. If we are deluded enough to pop all the way through that window, then we fall into a ditch that's on the other side. And we're stuck in that ditch. If on the other hand, we think we can escape the human problem by squeezing back the other way, well, that's impossible. We just get stuck in all the, all the more. Stuck forever in the cycle of self-clinging and suffering and the desire to escape. Actually, being stuck in the window isn't being stuck in the window at all. It's just a metaphor, isn't it? It's just a thought. Dogen's poem on this case uh, says this. The whole world is the tail of a water buffalo passing through a window. The tail is the mind which knows neither passing nor not passing. So, that's a wonderful case. Why can't the tail pass through? So, do we have uh, comments or things to talk about? doesn't have to be directly about the case, but anything that's in your mind now? How's that working to have somebody else's mind? Right. <laughs> Not too well, yeah. I had that thought years ago. I thought, oh, if I could just have somebody else's mind. And I'm like, no, this is, this is where I'm stuck. So the, the tail feels like that. It's mm-hmm. what I always have to be turning on in practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but you know, uh, when you uh, don't mind anymore, in the case of greed, say you have greedy mind, and whenever you say when well, you make progress in your practice, you attach to that and you want more and more, you know. Or just when you get anything good happens, you want that to go on and on and more and more. Or just you know all the manifestations that say greed could have in a, in a life and in, 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 in consciousness. When you don't like the greed and you are planning greedily on less greed. <laughs> what this actually does and you can see this happening in your own mind what this actually does is it actually produces more thoughts of greed and more behaviors and more frustration it actually literally does that when you don't mind when you say oh, this is a, actually there's no difference between greed or anything else it's just something arising and passing away and you're patient with it and you don't really mind what happens is there's uh, much less troublesome 
breathe in the mind. Now, from your point of view, nothing has changed. Right? You still have the problem. But you don't mind now. So, you're still looking at the tail. But actually, things have changed a lot in some way because, you know, I I find this all the time. Stuff comes into the mind and if I don't um, get exercised about it, why, why should I be surprised that anything would arise in my mind? Why, why would I be, no matter how negative it may be, why, what's the surprise in this? If, if anybody on the planet can have any emotion or feeling or craziness, why shouldn't it arise right here where I'm sitting? So if that happens and I don't mind, then I'm not victimized by that. I just bear witness to it. It comes and goes. And so uh, it's still whatever greed or passion or desire or delusion but if I don't uh, exercise it and if I don't worry about it so much uh, and I stay present and I stay uh, with my practice it can go and it won't matter so much yeah 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 yeah. Sure, because that's your connection to others. You really understand life. It's as if all of life is arising in you, and you're being given the opportunity to see all of life, and you're complaining about it. You know, <laughs> you you have the opportunity to be connected with all of life through your own experience, through the particular craziness that is your life or my life. And uh, and we're and we're we don't want to appreciate that. But when you do appreciate, yeah, you become grateful. Wow, what a great thing to have this life to live as it is. Yeah. So thanks for bringing that up. It's a really important point. So, I mean, when you talk about these things, I think we all recognize that how true they are, and we all have our experience of them, but. It so, runs so counter to the way we usually think about things that actually you, you often you'll have the experience probably today, like you'll leave and you'll think that made sense now. What was what? <laughs> what did he say or what did we say or what's this? I, don't, I completely forgot. You know, <laughs> actually probably that happens. I completely forgot. I wrote it down in my notebook, but now I don't know what it means. You know, <laughs> yeah. How do you define what? The word death. Debt. Debt. D-E-B-T. Debt. Yeah. Karmic. Karmic debt. Okay. Karmic debt. In other words, uh, what does the Master Mumon say? Uh, you will be able to repay your debts and be free to help others. In other words, you will be able to recognize, it's kind of what we're talking about here, you'll be able to recognize what you are and what your karma is and no longer be bound, so bound by it that you're incapable of even noticing anybody else, which is so often the case in life, you know. We are, have so many issues that we can't notice, you know, anything else. So that you can be free of that to the extent that you can actually use, be grateful for whatever your own limitations are because they connect you with others and you can use your life to benefit others free from your karma, not in the sense that your karma goes away or dissolves, but in the sense that you're no longer beset by it.
Well, you know, the uh, famous uh, second, I think it's the second case of Mumon Khan, which is directly about karma. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's so obscure, really. You know, this is where, uh, it's, it's, this is an this is unusual case in that it's, it's a longer, it's not just a few lines like these other ones are. It's a much longer story, but, so I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell it, and I'll use that as a way of responding to you. Uh, so this Zen master is giving lectures on his, in his mountain temple and every day he sees coming to the lectures an old man. And uh, at the end of so in the course of lectures, he goes up to the old man and he says, I, I see you've been attending the lectures. It's very nice to see you. You know, who are you and where are you from? And, and the man sa- old man says, uh, well, I, I appear to be an old man, but I'm, in fact, I'm not an old man. I'm actually a fox. Uh, and before I was born as, as a fox, I was actually the master of this very monastery many generations ago. And when I was the master of this monastery, somebody asked me, like Michael is asking, this is why I have to be careful what I say, uh, <laughs> asking, somebody asked me, is the enlightened person free of karmic debt or not? And I said... Yes, the enlightened person is free of karmic debt. And because of this answer, I was reborn for 500 lives as a fox. (laughs) And this is my 500th fox lifetime, and I find this a very uncomfortable situation. I'm hoping for a better rebirth. Can you please say something now that will uh, improve my situation? So the Zen master says, and, and here we have a translation issue. What does he actually say? But let, let's put it this way. He says, uh, I, my view would be, he says something like this. The enlightened person is not obscured by karmic debts. And so uh, the, the, the old man says, thank you very much. I now am freed from the fox body. Please give my fox body the burial, a full regalia for a Zen priest. So that night, long story, that night the entire monastic community goes to a cave somewhere where the Zen master pokes out the body of a dead, smelly fox, which they then bury with the full ceremony of a Zen priest. And I'll end it. There's a little more to the story, but let's just end it there. So... Uh, so what does this mean? What does this tell us about karma? And I think it's very similar uh, to what I was just responding to this question about what does debt mean? In the sense that we are no longer twisted and obscured by our karmic 
pattern, we are free from karma. In the sense that that karmic pattern doesn't dissolve into thin air and we don't become another individual, we're not free from karma. So actually the, the question, free or not free, is the wrong question. And to choose one of those options is going to be the wrong option. We are bound by karma. If we become awakened, we will be bound by karma, but in a completely different way, with ease and joy and an ability to benefit others. But we still, we still pay, pay our debts, so to speak, but we're free of, uh, you know, yeah, free of being messed up by what we owe and creating further debts. Because that's what we're doing. We're creating more debts every moment, right? So, uh, but, but, uh, but this does make a difference because, um, the weight of the debt, you know, at a moment I create an action, I will receive the effects of that action. If I keep uh, on in that same way, the weight of the effects of the prior action will be far more weighty than if I am awakened and practice differently. But I don't escape that action, ever. And part of the point of the koan is the recognition that you look at the story and of course the obvious thing is, oh, what a tragedy. He was born 500 lives as a fox. And part of the point of the story is this was not a tragedy. If he was free, he could have had, and maybe he did have, 500 wonderful lives as a fox. What's wrong with being a fox? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So if we have to suffer for our deeds of the past, which sometimes we do, we can do that with some sense of making use of that suffering if we have some understanding and some release from our practice. Now, does this make sense? Is this not too obscure? You're understanding that this? Yeah. 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 You don't have to be somebody else. Right. Exactly. 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 Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's how I what I think is. Does that speak to your uh, what you ask? Yeah. Yeah. So it's you know you, you we are responsible for our acts you know and uh, and and uh, and we never know what the consequences will be. You may do so, you know we all know, and this is the strange strange thing is that you can do something really good with really good intentions and the result is disaster and you're responsible, 
And the reverse is true. You can mess up in a thousand ways and sometimes good comes of it and you're also responsible. Nevertheless, you always try your best to do good and to avoid doing that which is harmful. And you don't know how the measure of this and that there's no exact science of karma. There's only a sense of how the mind and heart work and the effort to, to you know, act as a good person in the world and the faith that regardless of what happens in the short run, in the long run, as the Buddha taught, sort of indelibly in every single Buddhist tradition that I've ever heard of, agrees and says also, good actions lead to wholesome results, bad actions lead to unwholesome results. This is the eternal law. Whether or not we see that in this lifetime, this is how it is. So there's a kind of faith in that that I think comes from actual experience on the cushion. So there's a kind of big confidence that you have. So, you know, that's why I think it's always, one should never be strategic trying to figure out, oh, if I do this, maybe that'll happen. I mean, you know, I suppose there are times when you have to figure like that, but don't get caught in that. Realize, I have to be honest, I have to have integrity, I have to have, you know, I really have to be an honorable person and I'm absolutely sure that regardless of what happens to me or in this situation, that will always be the right thing in the end. You have to, and you know, I really feel that way. So, even though you know, well, I could do the honorable thing and the whole world could come falling in pieces around my head, that could happen, sure. Nevertheless, I'm sure this is the way. Yeah. So this issue of karma is obviously a very important one. It's the main, one of the main things that the Buddha was concerned about. Despite all this meditation stuff, the reality is that, that the path of the Buddha is a path of ethical conduct. It's a path of conduct in this life. It's not a path of achieving meditational highs. In fact, the only point of meditation practice in Buddhism is to come to uh, an appreciation and depth of living in which you will really understand conduct and how to come forward and as I was saying in the talk, how to come forward in this lifetime uh, the more meditation and insight there is in your life, the more, the deeper will be that, that appreciation and understanding of how to conduct yourself uh, in the world and that was really the Buddha's concern and, and uh, because there were teachers in India at the Buddhist time who, who thought that conduct didn't matter. And he vigorously debated them. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Have you encountered the, um, the idea that some teachers say that Dogen saw the samurai he saw them learning Zen. Hmm. That he was um, affected by what he saw. And that he changed his interpretation of the Fox Cohen hmm. towards the direction that you just said. Because that he had previously had a more morally, I think you 
That's interesting to me. I, I'm not. Sh- do, do you do you have maybe you can afterward you can give me some references? Yeah. Uh, uh, there's no doubt that uh, Dogen did have a view, a very strong view of karma, like the one I'm expressing to you. Uh, it's, there's also no doubt that in Japanese Zen and also sometimes in Dogen you get the feeling of Zen as a kind of aesthetic appreciation that, vi- that in which, which seems to be positioning itself beyond morality. You do get that sense sometimes. And, and certainly the history of Japanese Zen has that element in it. And it seems like Japanese cultural, culture tends to be a lot less focused on right and wrong and morality compared to our own culture. But the part in what you say that I that I was not had not heard about was that that Dogen uh, was appalled by the samurai. Uh, so that I'd, I'd like to read about that and see what the evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't because uh, I th- I thought that histo- I'm not a by no means an expert on Japanese history, but I thought that the the alliance between Zen and the samurai uh, movement, which was a very pernicious one, came later on uh, historically, but. Uh, things that come later on maybe start several centuries beforehand, so it's possible. <laughs> 